0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, with the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com airlines and Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale, seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com.
1: Hello from the Airlines Confidential Cockpit, I'm Chris Chimes, and before we get into this week's show, let me offer apologies for the technical issues and quality of last week's podcast. I was on board a Carnival Cruise Line ship last week, and we actually do have quality Wi-Fi on board. I was working off Teams video calls without a hitch all week. And when Ben and I were working through the show just fine and had a great connection, but then when we went to save the audio files, there was clearly an issue. Not going to make excuses, but I did want to say we are both very sorry. Chris, you summed it up
2: well, and luckily the interview with Mike Whitaker from Hyundai Urban Air Mobility was recorded separately, and that conversation was terrific. I sure learned a lot from that one. We're going to talk this week to our roving correspondent, Chris Sloan, ahead of a great guest next week. We're not going to spoil the surprise, as you'll have to mark your calendar to dial back in for that one. But first, Chris, before we get to the news, how was the cruise? Was this your first time on board a ship since the industry's recent? start?
1: Uh, It was my first time cruising. I've been on a few ships for events as we got them started, but it was my first time on board as a, I really wasn't a guest. I was working all week. Um, It was the, what we call in the cruise industry, the naming ceremony uh, for our new ship, Carnival Mardi Gras. And so we took the uh, party on the road uh, across the Caribbean uh, all week with our guests and our godmother and VIPs. And it was a fun, busy week. Uh, It was interesting watching. Uh, We keep talking about pent-up demand for travel. It was interesting actually watching it in action. Our guests are really excited to be back on board. I think we were at a little over 80% capacity. We've been easing back into our, our load factor capacities. And so there's lots of excitement. We're looking forward to next year. Our bookings are ahead of where we were two years ago. And that's how we think about bookings usually about a year out in the cruise business. So hopefully that uh, that foreshadows good things for travel in general in 2022, um, seeing the guest reaction on board a cruise ship. But uh, let's see where we go. That sounds great.
2: Uh, you mentioned VIPs, Chris. Any uh, name dropping you could do for us?
1: Well, we actually sailed uh, with celebrity chef Rudy Sodeman, who has uh, a great seafood restaurant on on board. Uh, a lot of people know him from the food faces he makes uh, out of his dishes. Uh, he doesn't do that with seafood, but uh, that's one of Rudy's, uh, Rudy's signature styles. And then we sail with Miss Universe, Andrea Meza from Mexico, and our godmother, of the ship, a Miss Universe Dominican Republic, Kimberly Jimenez. So we took uh, the ship to the DR and had an event there. That was fun. So our guests were excited to be part of the celebration, got a lot of nice media coverage. It uh, was themed around Mardi Gras, obviously, and the diversity of Carnival Cruise Lines. So uh, it was a fun, fun week. Uh, the universe of fun, we called it. And uh, now we're back on dry land, back to work. Well, one more question, and this
2: is obviously shows me as a naive cruiser, but do all ships have a godmother? That's pretty cool.
1: It's maritime tradition that all ships have a godmother. Often they're christened with their name before they go into service, but sometimes it's somewhere kind of early on. So we were, there's some superstitions around that. So we were working to get uh, Mardi Gras christened as soon as possible. She started service in uh, at the end of July, but she's been going gangbusters. Our guests love her. And um, it was really fun to be part of a naming. It's, it was the first ship naming in the US since the pandemic. So there was a lot of interest with cruise fans and the cruise media uh, because it was a big symbol of cruise getting back to business in the U.S. So with that, Ben, let's boogie to some news. Uh, We've covered the major U.S. airlines and their third quarter results over the past couple of weeks. But sometimes there are little nuggets of gold in places you least expect. And we've talked quite a bit about how LCCs and ULCCs are performing better than the mainline carriers and that leisure will lead the way to recovery. But specifically, Ben, did you see that Allegiant reported higher Q3 revenue in 2021 than in 2019? What do you think about that?
2: I did see that, and I was kind of shocked at that. Their capacity was a little higher, and I think that drove some of it. But I think it just goes to show how different Allegiant's model is, even to other LCCs and ULCCs. They just do it differently there. And the fact that they're able to ground planes when there isn't a lot of demand, but not lose a lot of money, their costs are so variable versus fixed. And that they've been picking bigger markets to try to serve, not huge markets, although they do fly to Newark, which I would categorize as huge. But they've added more middle-sized markets to their network over the last couple of years. And I think the combination of a few more planes and flying into some bigger pools of revenue just worked out great for them. That was a great story, I thought. And Allegiant continues to outpace even a sector which collectively is outpacing the big guys.
1: I uh, agree with you, Ben. And it's just interesting to watch them stay in their lane and like you said, while they're getting into some larger markets, they're they're not like crossing over into other lanes. They're just kind of expanding their lane in a way that um, kind of furthers their success. So we'll keep watching them. And and like we've also talked about, there are other startup airlines who are trying to kind of pick some of the best of Allegiant to uh, build into their business model. So we'll see how that works for them as well. And then the wheel of airline misfortune uh, landed on, on American Airlines this past weekend as they canceled at least 1,400 flights as of recording time. Uh, uh, that was re- attributed to staffing shortages that often occur at the end of the month, plus some challenging weather, mostly in the Mid-Atlantic. So, Ben, we can't resolve their operational issues that just happen. but I'm going to flip this question a bit. We've got two big travel holidays coming up at the end of November and December. How do you think airline planners can do a better job of saving some of their staffing juice uh, for the end of the month to make sure peak holiday travel isn't as disruptive as we just saw?
2: That's a great question, Chris. And clearly, American chose the trick over the treat for Halloween, right, for their customers. It's a tough thing. And airline operations and schedule planners always have to work together. And when things really go off the rails like they did with American this weekend and like they have for other airlines this summer at times, it's often because there's just too many planes scheduled for the amount of crew available at the time. And sometimes they schedule the flights believing they're going to have enough crew, of course, or they don't get pushback from the operations of we're worried that we may be short on crew. And so in general, I think that what they need to do is just be talking every single day. And by they, I mean the schedule planners, the systems operation control mostly, and the airports in general also. And they have to make sure that they know what's happening and cancel far enough in advance if they believe there's going to be challenges. Now, the real challenge with that around Thanksgiving is it's such a tight holiday in terms of the number of days that there aren't that many Days to fly out for Thanksgiving and, and the return is even usually more tightened back in. So if there's not staff those days, people could have a real messed up Thanksgiving. And we all hope that's not the case. At the end of December, It's a little better in that between the celebrations of Christmas, Hanukkah, and other, and then New Year's, the travel is heavy, but it's spread out over a couple of weeks. So there's a little more time to recover in that. So I'm a little more worried about Thanksgiving than Christmas, to be honest, or end of December. But mostly, I think the airline's got to get real right now about what staff they're going to have, work with their pilots, flight attendants, mechanics, try to get a good beat on what the situation is going to be. And if they know they're only going to fly 85% or 90% of the schedule at the end of December, cancel those flights right now so people can make arrangements to those. You know, Chris, I would have hoped... after the difficult operational summer that the airlines had, that they would have learned enough from those situations so that we wouldn't be in a situation of a messed up holiday season at the end of this year. But it looks like there's still a lot more to learn.
1: You know, Ben, I got caught up in all this this weekend uh, in Orlando. It wasn't pretty. And of course, if you're going to be anywhere where there's a mess, I mean, Orlando is one of those places where it's not great because there's lots of families and just always crowded, especially on the weekends. You know, I was able to maneuver pretty quickly on my own and just get out of line and book on another carrier. And, you know, I was on business travel, so it just moved quickly. If you're traveling at holiday time and you're an infrequent traveler and you're with your family and you got grandma and a couple kids and, you know, then you call the the res line and they're short staffed, and you go to the ticket counter and they're understaffed right now. You know it just compounds pretty quickly. So you know I, I agree with you; they need to be looking farther ahead and thinking about how we're going to deal with this. The other thing I have to wonder is, does management tell the rest of management you need to stick around for Thanksgiving and and the holidays? We need to show our frontline employees that we're working hard too, and whether it be showing up at the airport to help out or just being available, but we can't have all of headquarters off on vacation while we expect our frontline employees to, to manage through the holiday season. So I, I think they're going to have to be thinking about some other ways to make sure the frontline employees know everyone's supporting them and everyone's hard at work just like they are.
2: That's really smart, Chris. It was a long time ago, but I'm sure you remember that Christmas baggage situation in Philadelphia that we all dealt with at U.S. Airways.
1: Yeah, very much so. Well, with that, a reminder to our aviation executives who are tuning in that Seabury Capital Group is a specialty finance and investment banking firm with a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, state-of-the-art analysis, technology and solutions, and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry finance and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com.
2: And Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home-to-gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, CLEAR's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with CLEAR.
1: Ben, a few shows back, aviation attorney Mark Dombroff talked to us about his five-point plan to curtail passenger disruptions in flight. A lot of our collective discussion with Mark was about how the FAA and federal law enforcement needs to do more. This past week, American Airlines had to divert a flight after a passenger punched a flight attendant and broke her nose. So if you were still an airline CEO, I'm going to keep asking you to pretend like you're still an airline CEO, and this happened to one of your crew, what specifically would you do?
2: Well, I actually think Doug Parker has done the right thing, which is said that he will push to have that person prosecuted to the extent that the law allows. Also, I would, and I assume Doug has done this, I would reach out to that flight attendant personally, of course, make sure that she is taken care of, her family's taken care of, know that she's not going to lose pay while she's out of work and that the company's with her and apologizes for this situation. I might also reach out to all the flight attendants, thanking them for the job they do, recognizing that these things can happen and we don't want them to happen to anyone, but appreciating their vigilance and diligence when they're on the job. And so I think banning the person for life like American did, pushing for prosecution like American said they're going to do, and then just being a human being and talking to everyone involved, especially the victim in this crime and trying to make things you know, not happen again, but also recognize that the company's behind them in what has become a much tougher job in the last year and a half.
1: I agree. Doug uh, did a nice job the, uh, for for as nice of a thing as you could do in this situation. I, uh, you know, It's a difficult thing to watch your employees being attacked, and so they stepped up appropriately. I personally think the Airlines Trade Association, A4A, can do more. I have not seen them out there like I would like to think that they could be and should be and would be. Their focus has been on getting... International travel back, and I understand that, but there's a lot more that they could do as an industry through A4A, and I think that uh, that team needs to get out there more forcefully and in a more public way and put some pressure on the FAA and DOT to step it up.
2: That's a good ad, And that's what the industry lobby group is there, right? It's to push issues that are important to the industry. And I think everyone in the industry would think that safety on board the airplane in flight for the crew members is especially an important issue right now. Well, coming up, Chris Sloan is going to talk to us about the Breeze Airways delivery of their first Airbus A220. But not before we remind you that TA Connections provides an intelligent, integrated, and flexible suite of applications that allow airlines to deploy an industry-leading mix of augmentation and automations tools, configurable and personalized to your unique needs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Well, we welcome back our roving correspondent, Chris Sloan, this time coming from Mobile, Alabama. Chris, tell us about this event you went to and who was there and what was this all about? How big was this shindig?
3: Well, thanks, Ben and Chris, for having me on. It was great to be uh, back in Bama. I actually went to high school down there, so it's always good to roll tide. It was uh, it was a big event. I mean, it was the first unveiling of the first Breeze Airways Airbus A220-300, and uh, that's significant for in a number of ways. Uh, they have 80 of these on order with another 40 options, which they believe they will take. And this airplane really ushers in what many are calling Breeze 2.0, which is this next iteration of Breeze, You know, which just launched uh, you know, at the very end of uh, April or the very first of May last year. But it's going to be... A very, very different aircraft, allowing them to open up a lot more longer haul routes. So this was really a, a cool event. David Nealman and uh, his entire executive team and a number of Airbus uh, dignitaries, including the president of Airbus North America, were there. And Nealman I thought was really interesting. I mean, he is kind of wowed and impressed as we were because he himself said he was seeing the plane uh, for the first time. His uh, his niece apparently and some family members had... Uh, had gone down before and released a fun little TikTok video, which was like a little tease. But um, he said it was, uh, you know, it was kind of cool watching him and his team uh, lay eyes on this uh, A220 for the very, very first time. And so they're uh, they're building about one, nearly two a month there. They're getting close to building two a month at a mobile, and um, uh, they will be taking one a month now uh, until around the first of April. Uh, which is they essentially a rough date where they expect to commence service uh, with the A220.
1: So Chris, tell us about the aircraft and why David Nealman and the rest of you were wowed.
3: Well, it's really blue and it's got really pretty <laughs> wings. Um, but uh, I think we were wowed the most, the thing that stuck out the most was the abnormally huge uh, premium cabin. And so literally all the way back to the first emergency exits right at the wing were all uh, what they call the nicest seats. And these are first-class seats in a 2-2 configuration. And uh, those seats were, you know, I mean, 36 seats. I mean, this is like a United High J aircraft. I mean, we were really shocked. I mean, 39 inches of seat pitch, 20 inches of width. Uh, You have seat back power, USB-A, USB-C, at every one of those seats and, um, you know, this was very unusual to see something like this. So it's a different product than like, let's say for ULCC, you're not used to seeing typically a first class cabin, much less 36 seats. And this is different than what spirits big front seat, you know, at the Ben, uh, the Ben crate over there at spirit and that this is a bundled product called nicest. And so nicest buys you upgraded snacks, food, uh, drinks, two carry on bags, additional breeze points, priority boarding. And uh, the idea here is it's a, it's kind of a surprise. It's only like a, they said, you know, they were thinking like a $50 upcharge over what's called their nicer cabin, which is only two rows of the economy seats, which are in the two, three configuration. There's only about 10 of those seats. And those are in about 35, 34 inches of pitch, which is a lot, very similar to what JetBlue has. Uh, for extra legroom. And then at the back, there's 80 seats, again, 30 to 31 inches of pitch, which is pretty generous, again, by ULCC standards. And again, uh, another thing uh, that you, you notice that's different is every seat is going to have, uh, does have USB-A and USB-C power across the board. Uh, they will have connectivity. Apparently in nicest class, you'll actually have that free. So they'll be announcing that vendor as well. And they'll have seat back streaming for video and gate to gate. So, you know, it's really, a, it's kind of, it's interesting. It almost feels like this hybrid between kind of the JetBlue Alaska space and the ULCC space. But clearly where they're going uh, with this airplane is that it's very much these nice, nicer, nicest. Um, their their belief, these these the segmentation is going to be bundles as opposed to buying everything individually a la carte. Because as they said, if you have to buy everything a la carte, Uh, That's probably not very nice, is it? So it was a uh, a beautiful aircraft, uh, mood lighting, the huge bins, the wide aisles, and, um, you know, very, very roomy. And um, I think we all walked away pretty impressed by, uh, by the plane. It'll even be more impressed when we actually get to fly in it. And big windows
2: too. I flew in a Delta A220 and was surprised at just how big the windows are. That doesn't seem like that'd be a big deal to have a window that's a little larger, but it does make a difference when you're sitting in the plane.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think it does. It's 50 per- those windows are 50% larger than on an A320 and they just bring so much natural light. Did you notice how high the ceilings are as well? It almost feels like a, a wide body aircraft.
2: Well, Delta clogged them all up with overhead bins, I think. So So Chris, when you talk about this kind of configured plane, and I'm guessing you use the term ULCC, but I'm guessing David Nealman doesn't. Does that suggest to you that this plane is going to be flown long haul and not the sort of short East Coast kind of stuff that the E-190s have been doing?
3: Yeah, you're exactly right. The E-190s are limited pretty much to, a. it's a pretty Spartan product because, as and there are no plans to really upgrade the product because those stage lengths are anywhere from 750,000 miles, no more than two hours. They average around 90 minutes. But by the way, they, they did take great pains to tell us that their JD powers and their NPS scores are, are are through the roof already and 30% of their customers are already returning. So they don't have a problem with it. But the, uh, the A220s will be anywhere from three to six hours for the most part and that opens up transcontinental runs potentially runs to Europe and uh, certainly South America and you know Hawaii they, they just have a huge uh, amount of uh, city pair potentials out there they believe and um, uh, you know it's a it's certainly a long-haul more long-haul aircraft product and that's why I think they've they bought the product uh, to this level for breeze uh, you know 2.0 so it's it is a very different um, iteration. It's almost like there's two airlines uh, running there. But I will say, I think what was really interesting about it was, you know, they said, we're going to utilize our fleet ultra high. And it's, you know, I think when you hear 12 to 14 hour days, that's those are long, you know, long hours. But uh, they're talking of this aircraft being in the air from 18 to 20 hours a day, because that will enable them to do what Allegiant and Avello and certain other LCCs do, which is to fly invariably. So some week traffic days of the week, they will have brand new aircraft, these expensive $20 million assets um, sitting on the ground, perhaps Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Saturdays, because their point is, if you look at over the course of a week, we're flying such long haul that we will be able to utilize and get the utilization uh, the same, if not more, uh, flying them four, four or five days a week, as opposed to seven. That was kind of interesting.
1: So Chris, after seeing the product, how was your perception about what you thought the Breeze business plan was versus where it might be going based on these aircraft?
3: I still think the original Breeze business plan is intact. The idea here is that these aircraft will be servicing, and just like the entire airline, the network will be servicing nonstop routes that previously didn't have any service. So, or at least didn't have any direct service because as they like to say, it's not very nice to ask people to connect. Everybody would like to fly uh, nonstop. So I think that's, That hasn't changed. It's clear that um, this is really the backbone of where the airline is going. And, you know, I thought they had some interesting ideas. I don't know if they'll come to pass, but one idea, you know, everybody kind of raised their eyebrows when they saw this massive business cabin. People, you know, they've been on the record saying they're gonna have a, a premium product cabin since the beginning on these longer haul aircraft. But the idea that if the 36 seat configuration doesn't work out, uh, they can actually reconfigure and have different uh, configurations based on maybe where the plane's based or on markets or season of seasonality, which I haven't heard of this happening since like the 70s or 80s with like quick change aircraft. So I don't really know. I don't think any of us know how that's going to work. But when the, the Lopa showed up on um, that and we saw the configuration, it was like, my God, that's that's mm. a lot of seats. But they're like, you know, don't hold us to it. We can always shrink that and um, expand other seats.
2: Well, my sense, Chris, is that quick change configurations on board a plane always look good on paper, but in practicality are tough to actually implement in relatively short time. Sometimes the seats tend to look a little beat up. And does the team really want to reconfigure multiple times within a day or even within a week or is it more of a seasonal thing? Do you have any sense as to how much they're really counting on this aspect of the configuration?
3: I mean, they seem pretty set um, that this is that this is where they're going to start. They believe it's such a compelling product that you know, if it's a fifty dollar upcharge over what's called the nicer cabin, which it could be maybe only a hundred dollar upcharge, obviously depending on the distance in the market, um, they believe like it's so compelling that. They don't think they're going to have any problem necessarily selling it. They're not going to be using it for, you know, these are going to be revenue seats. They're not going to be upgrades, uh, everything. And, but but their point is, I mean, it'll get right down to at the gate, you know, or there is talk, you know, almost uh, perhaps there being auctions, you know, like, like Emirates does. So they feel that uh, they'll be able to stick to this, but they clearly left themselves uh, an out should it not work. Or should that there not be quite the demand, which I think is interesting because these are new city pairs that don't have non-service to begin. They're stimulating demand where n- maybe it doesn't necessarily exist. And on top of that, they're adding this huge premium cabin. Um, so, you know, no one's really sure how that's, um, that's going to work out, but they are giving themselves some latitude.
1: So I'm going to ask you to stick your neck out uh, as you talk about these new city pairs. Where do you think uh, this plane is going to show up first?
3: Well, is it okay if I uh, if I do a phone a friend with uh, Ben's son Enzo and because the, they're doing their <laughs> fantasy airline hub beat competition, Can we get him on the line.
2: Well, not right now. He's studying for school tomorrow. But thanks.
3: What a taskmaster. Well, so I mean, I don't know. Uh, just uh, Spidey senses say David Nealman lives in Hartford and uh, he also lives in Salt Lake. Neither two destinations. Uh, they already have service into Hartford. So. I don't know, maybe Hartford, San Francisco wouldn't be wouldn't be bad. And, uh, you know, maybe Hartford, Salt Lake City, so that the chairman can get home to Park City or wherever he lives in Utah. So those feel like the kind of missions that this plane could conceivably fly. I don't know. Those are my two guesses. They're not going to tell us. We tried. We tried. We tried to we tried to see if, you know, they could have a few drinks and maybe they would spill the spill some tea. But they said they're probably not going to announce that until uh, early January.
2: Well, I think those are pretty good guesses, Chris, but we'll have to see, of course, as Breeze evolves. And it's interesting that Breeze 2.0 is starting so soon after Breeze 1.0, but it really is an airplane thing, right? They wanted this plane from the beginning. And from the beginning, the A220 was a big part of what Breeze is going to be, right?
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Embers the are not going anywhere. Um, they, they say they can, these aircraft, you know, they're powered by the hour, they're acquired so cheap that... Um, that breeds 1.0 will continue to exist and then but yeah the 220 is really uh where the air the airline is going i mean from an environmental standpoint from a fuel efficiency standpoint i mean it is an excellent platform and they do uh, believe they'll also use these a220s potentially to overlap some of the routes that they're currently flying if those routes actually have higher demand but um as i said you know he said i'd be shocked if we don't take the next 40 that they have options for. So that'd be 120 aircraft, which is a pretty big ramp up. And I think they get all these aircraft. They're taking one a month with the first entering service in April. And then I think by 2027, 2028, they'll take and deliver that first 80. And then they go, uh, they go from there. So um, and they, the, the Air Jays might be used even increasingly for charters and things like that. But, you know, you say never bet against Neilman. I mean, I think the interesting thing here is they've really taken a, a moment in time where they're able to pick up used aircraft for next to nothing. And it's so fuel efficiency may be less of a concern. And then we can only imagine what deals they made here because uh, they will be the world's largest, at least on orders, uh, the world's largest A220-300 customer.
1: Well, Chris, you've been nice enough to dial in while you're on a personal trip. I think it's your anniversary this weekend. So we appreciate your time. We'll let you get back to the beach and uh, In the meantime, listeners, stay tuned. We hope to have some more conversations about Breeze and their new aircraft coming up over the next few weeks.
0: Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks, Chris. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net. The hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The archive.net is now boarding.
1: Well, thanks to Chris Sloan for another edition of the aviation version of You Are There, this time from Mobile, Alabama. And we're excited to say that we've got a guest coming up that uh, will tell us more about this aircraft and Breeze Airways' plans. You'll have to keep checking back each week to find out when that's going to be. In the meantime, it's time to answer a few listener questions. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202 Nine six four zero one seven seven, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, our first question is from Javier in Costa Rica. Hi there. I know everyone says this, but I love your show. As a frequent traveler, I'm always curious how airlines decide where they send their new equipment. Example, United sends their old 737, but American sends their new 737 MAX. KLM will normally use the 787 on a route, except for a couple of weeks when the 777 flies it. Same for Iberia. Can you talk about the thought process that goes into equipment selection?
2: That's a great question, Javier. Airlines do this in their schedule planning group and sometimes the operational control group. Usually the schedule planners think about the size of the equipment that should fly on every frequency because that's the group that's looking at demand and how many people do we think we can sell between any city pair that we fly. So is this a hundred seat route, 150 seat route, a 200 seat route or frequency, I might say. And so they think of it like that when they, they think about the airplanes that they have and think about an initial assignment, be it an old 737 or a max or something, but the real day-to-day job goes to the operations who will sort of see the tails or the aircraft that they have available, making sure to put the right size plane on the right route because it's been selling with that equipment. And they usually stick to what the schedulers say, but at times have to make changes and try to keep the sizing as close to as possible. I don't think it's as much of a market decision or market strategy as you sort of imply, for example, a United find their old 737s, but Americans sending their MAX to a certain city, for example. Both of them think that's the right size plane for that route. It might be how many of each they have, where that plane is positioned, where they have the crews properly positioned in time. In terms of the international stuff, like KLM using the 787, My guess is that they want to fly that plane as much as they can, but they don't have as many of those. And so they'll substitute with the 777 when they have to really just for operational efficiency. I think less is about market strategy and more is about right size plane for the demand at flight time. Chris, you may have a better idea about this in terms of the fact that you've had to Talk about airlines changing equipment. What do you think?
1: I think you covered most of it. I mean, there's also some kind of fleet strategy. So, for example, you know, American is flying their Max out of generally the Miami hub, and so if as they're adding routes, you're not going to see a Max show up DFW to San Diego, or that's not a new route. But so you got to watch how they're scheduling the specific aircraft so they can route through hubs for maintenance and other kinds of things that you kind of talked about. And then sometimes, you know, it's, it's, how do you build the market? So the old U S airways and, and even American as they were opening up some new Eastern European routes over the past decade, they were starting with the seven sixes and seeing the passenger reaction on both sides of the Atlantic. And they ended up putting larger aircraft, uh, on most of those routes over the last four or five years uh, except for obviously for the pandemic so it's kind of like you know what's the most efficient way to enter a market with probably an older aircraft and lower costs as they uh leverage you know, if they're mostly a leisure market you know does that impact what kind of aircraft as well switching gears ben but still on an international front we've talked a fair amount about miami But uh, our listeners have more questions, and Dennis from Miami wrote specifically about Delta and LATAM again. Guys, when Delta and LATAM announced their intended joint venture, most of us who follow the industry were incredibly surprised as this agreement or tie-up was unexpected, which comes to my question and my doubt about feeding LATAM flights into and out of Miami. Throughout Delta's history in Miami, they have served several destinations to and from which are no longer part of their schedule, such as Chicago, Houston, D.C., San Juan, uh, some locations in Canada, Cincinnati. While we know that COVID affected this JV, along with pending approval from the Chilean government, I just don't see Delta being able to provide the connectivity that American had provided. It seems that throughout the years, Delta has stepped aside in Miami and let other carriers take dominance. Most recently, new service from Southwest JetBlue and Now Spirit, which when they implement their full plan will make them the number two carrier from Miami. So my question did Delta leave the door open for too long and will they truly be able to sustain added flights to and from Miami? Their first announcement of adding feeder flights from Orlando, Tampa, and Raleigh Durham, which was now cut down to one frequency a day, didn't amount to really any expansion. And if they do really expand in Miami, does the current Concourse H provide enough gate space? So that's kind of a mouthful, Ben. But let's see where you go with this,
2: Dennis. I think it's a great question, and I think if I could answer in one word, the answer is yes. Delta can do it. I guess that's
1: forward.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but and well, let and let me tell you why. Miami as an airport has not been really constrained physically. Airports like O'Hare. LaGuardia, LA just don't have any more gates or just don't have many gates for big expansion. Miami has been pretty full in all the D gates where American really operates their hub. But in the rest of the airport, they're busy at certain times a day, but the utilization of the rest of the gates in that airport just aren't that high. The challenge in Miami has been that it's been expensive to fly there, which is why most of the low-cost service migrated 30 minutes up north to Fort Lauderdale Airport. Well, Miami has changed that, making it attractive for carriers like Frontier, JetBlue, and Spirit to go to Miami. And so I think that What's going to happen is you're just going to see the gate utilization at Miami in the non American gates start to approach what American is already doing in their concourse. Still probably won't reach that as well. The other thing I'll say about LATAM and Delta from Latin America, it's true that people connect to go a lot of places, but the three biggest places that they go are New York, Orlando, and New York, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and so Delta's obviously a big player in New York, and I'm sure they're going to have plenty of capacity from probably multiple New York airports into Miami. And I don't see them sort of pulling back on their Orlando flights for connectivity. So if they're meeting their LATAM flights with a well-timed flight to Orlando and New York, they're going to have almost all the connectivity they need for a large percentage of the customers coming in on LATAM that aren't just going to Miami. Yes, would they do better if they have frequencies to... 40 or 50 cities because they'd get one or two passengers to each of those? The answer to that is yes. And they'll figure out how much of that feed into Miami actually makes economic sense for them. But once they have Miami, New York, and Orlando, they have what they need for their connectivity for LATAM. And I think they can fit all of that in Terminal E.
1: Yeah, I agree, Ben. I was going to say maybe Delta doesn't want to compete everywhere with America and they want to compete where it matters. And I think you just named the the markets that matter. And then, you know, as you get higher up into the alphabets at Miami, there are parts of both the front of the airport and in the gate areas that kind of look like the land time forgot. I mean, it's like not very busy sometimes there's it's kind of spin art with regard to which carriers are operating where. So I think there's a fair amount of efficiency Without a lot of new construction, just to free up gates or move airlines around from where they are, and and the airport has the ability to do that and work with the carriers. But I think there's some ways to free up more gates and counter space and operating areas for a bigger Delta Latam operation once it gets there. So uh, I think there's some untapped resources and access at, at the airport. We'll get to our finer wine in just a moment. In fact, we'll get to it right after we thank Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney has the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. To learn more about their 95 years of innovation and how they can power the future of flight, visit PrattWhitney.com. Chris, this finer
2: wine is from another Javier, this one in Mesa, Arizona. While boarding my flight from Phoenix on Southwest, I was stopped because I had a roller bag, a backpack, and a small briefcase. I was told I could only bring two items on board, so I'd have to get out of the boarding line and check one of them. There weren't many people in line to board, and I saw no reason I couldn't bring these, since the backpack and the briefcase would have easily both fit under my seat. When I said this to the employee at the gate, she said to me, everyone knows you get one personal item and told me to go check one item in at the counter. I was embarrassed and annoyed. What do you think, Chris?
1: Javier, I'm annoyed that you were embarrassed and annoyed. Uh, this is a big wine a carry-on bag, and one personal item means two items, not two items or more if the aircraft isn't full. It means two items. So... I think that's been pounded into everyone's heads by now. So the flight attendant or the gate agent did the right thing. You did the wrong thing by trying to sneak it on. And once you got caught by being annoyed. So I get that it was an inconvenience, but you got to follow the rules. Ben, as we wrap up, uh, it's time for shout outs. So I'm going to give mine to the cabin crew of Southwest 2402 this past Saturday from Orlando to Atlanta. We talk a lot about, uh, disruptive passengers, they dealt calmly and professionally with an idiot passenger who shoved another passenger because she wouldn't change seats so that the first aggressive passenger could sit with her boyfriend. They sat the difficult passenger next to me while they sorted things out, and she proceeded to tell me things that I frankly didn't care about and make accusations that I didn't want to listen to. She was lucky that the other passenger didn't shove her back based on what she was telling me. Anyway, after the gate agents interviewed multiple witnesses who all agreed that my temporary neighbor did in fact push the other passenger, my seatmate was thankfully removed. And the best part was that her boyfriend, the one she wanted to sit by, well, he didn't get off the plane. He just sat there and went on to Atlanta. He ditched her. Maybe he had tickets to the Braves game Saturday night. But in any event, the cabin crew was terrific in how they handled uh, what could have been a very difficult situation.
2: Well, shout outs to flight attendants seem always an appropriate thing, especially now. <laughs> well, my shout out this week goes to Project Journey at DCA Airport in here in Washington. We spoke a little while ago on this show about the good riddance to gate 35X when the airport built this nice new concourse for all the regional jets. Well, the second phase of that is happening this week now, where they're moving the checkpoints from the individual concourses to the end of the big walkways that come in from the garages, which is going to open up all the concessions to inside. And so when you go through security now, everything at DCA is going to be walkable for people who are flying. So if you're connecting from one concourse to another, you don't go through security again. And if you're in one concourse and your flight's delayed, you want to go have lunch at Legal Seafood, you could do that now and things like that. It's a lot of change at DCA an important airport in the air system, a very convenient airport if you're flying to and from DC. And this is the last phase of a really great project that's making this airport much more customer friendly.
1: That's exciting. I frankly hadn't even heard about that until you mentioned it uh, the other day. So uh, we'll be watching that construction and maybe models for other airports moving forward.
2: Well, have a great week, everyone. This has been another edition of Airlines Confidential, and we'll see you next week.
1: Thanks for dialing in. Have a
2: good week.
0: This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.